If you have your Bibles with you, I'd invite you to turn with me in them to two places this morning. We're going to be in two different places. We're going to jump around quite a bit, but we're going to start here in these two passages, both from the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and Philippians chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible, we have some Bibles on the back cart that you can use. We also have bulletins that contains the passage. You can simply follow along on the screen behind me. Today, of course, is Resurrection Sunday, and so though we've been spending some time here at Ascension studying the Lord's Prayer, we've set that aside for the last few weeks as we've been led up until this day, and and this morning I want to, for a few minutes anyway, meditate on and think about the reality and the ramifications of the Resurrection And so listen as I read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. If you are able, it's our tradition here at Ascension for you to stand for the reading of God's Word, so I invite you to do that this morning. Listen now as I read. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preach to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. Because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share in His sufferings becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. We're here this morning. I suspect many of us, most of us, maybe all of us, we're here this morning because the resurrection of Jesus Christ sits at the fulcrum of human history, forever changing the world, forever changing eternity. We could think about our own annals of human history and Think about things that changed our world, electricity, light bulbs, the airplane, the atomic bomb, the internet. We could go on and on. These inventions in human history forever changed us. 
Things would never be the same, but there's one event that stands above them all. And it's not an invention. It's a reality. Three points I want to make this morning briefly from these two passages. And the first one is this. This isn't a fairy tale. This isn't a fairy tale. We gather this morning not to share a story, not to comfort ourselves with the myth of someone else's imagination. We gather this morning because Jesus is alive. And how do we know He is alive? Well, Paul here in these two passages begins to tell us. And the first thing he says is, In verses 3 and 4, we read this phrase, in accordance with the Scriptures. It was predicted. You see, some say that the Gospel accounts were mere fabrications, that they were made up. And we'll get to that in a moment. But what Paul wants us to see is that the resurrection... It's not just a gospel phenomenon. It was something that had been spoken about for generations upon generation. And there's no doubt it shocked the followers of Jesus of Nazareth who had been walking with Him for all these years. But in one sense, it shouldn't have shocked these Jewish men. The Hebrew Scriptures had spoken for hundreds and hundreds of years. Isaiah had spoken of this suffering servant that would appear in Israel's story in Isaiah 53. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. And then David, the shepherd king, the servant king, would speak of someone in Psalm 16, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. Even that that crazy story that we all love as kids, that I know you kids love that story of Jonah being swallowed by a fish and being trapped in the belly of that fish for three days. Even that was a prelude, was a shadow of Jesus' journey of three days in the tomb. And there's no doubt that Isaiah and David and Jonah, they didn't know this man's name. They didn't know all of how this was going down. They didn't know exactly of what they spoke. But they clearly wrote about something that wouldn't happen for centuries, that wouldn't happen for generations. Jesus takes all of these familiar passages, I assume, and when He walks with these men in Luke 24, he says this, he said to them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And so Paul here to the Corinthian church, and then as it comes to us this morning via the Holy Spirit, Paul proclaims, These writings, these Old Testament Scriptures, they were verifiable. People could check for themselves whether indeed Jesus was spoken of in accordance with the Scriptures. This was no fairy tale. But it's not just that it was predicted by the Scriptures. 
The resurrection of Jesus changed lives. It transformed lives. See, Paul here calls out for us a pile of witnesses. Cephas, the twelve, five hundred brothers, James, and then finally, Paul himself. You see, this, brothers and sisters, this was the seed of the Christian church. One pastor says this, one writer says this, there were dozens of other messianic pretenders whose lives and careers ended the same way Jesus's did. Why would the disciples of Jesus have come to the conclusion that his crucifixion had not been a defeat, but had been a triumph, unless they had seen him rise from the dead? There's no other plausible explanation for the birth of the Christian church. It was their fervor for what they had seen with their own eyes that fueled their expansion of the teachings of Jesus. Remember how John begins his first letter to the churches. We've studied this recently. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, we have touched with our own hands concerning the word of life. This life was made manifest and we have seen it and we testify to it and proclaim to you that this is eternal life. These men and women who had seen Jesus risen from the grave, they put all of their eggs in that basket. They were willing to go to the death believing that the Messiah had been raised. There was absolutely no doubt. And Paul says something here in verse 6. He says this little phrase, most of whom are still alive. Here in a public letter, that was to be read publicly amidst a group of churches, he essentially says to those first century hearers, ask them. Ask them what they saw. They're still alive. Ask them yourselves. This wasn't some crazy one, crazy delusional person. This is hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people. Ask any of them what they saw. This is no fairy tale. You and I, we take so many things on the authority of others. We've never been to space, but we hear the testimony of those who have gone. We've never met George Washington, but we believe the testimony of those who speak of him and what he was like. I'm here to proclaim to you, to remind to you that the testimony of the resurrection is undeniable. And because of it, everything has changed. C.S. Lewis, the great Oxford and Cambridge English professor, says this on the gospel accounts. He says, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends, and myths all my life. I know what they are like. And I know none of them are like this. He goes on to explain, it's a fascinating passage, he goes on to explain the difference between ancient fiction and modern fiction and how the gospel accounts just don't fit into what ancient fiction was like. This is no fairy tale. I know here this morning that I don't need to make this case to many of you. 
You're here because you wholeheartedly believe. But I know some of you, your faith is weak. Or maybe some of you, your faith is non-existent and you need to hear, you need to be reminded that we have a firm place to stand. Ran across this quote this week from an author. He says, if Christ is not risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. But just how exactly, or what exactly, was the meaning behind these changed lives? We've talked about the resurrection changing lives, the resurrection being predicted in the Scriptures, but how did it change lives? What was the meaning behind the resurrection? Well, that's where I want to go next. Not just this isn't a fairy tale, but a risen Jesus is the anchor of your hope. A risen Jesus is the anchor of your hope. Let me give you an illustration. If I've got a job and I'm going to hire two people to do some pretty straightforward tasks, and I tell the first person that I'm going to give them a salary of $10,000, and I tell the second person that I'm going to give them a salary of $10 million, do you think they would approach their work any differently? Of course they would. Their future is shaping their present. And this is what the resurrection did. This is why the early church selflessly cared for the disease. This is why the early church prayed for their enemies rather than seeking revenge upon them. Because these men and women had been transformed, and they had a life-shaping conviction about their future, that their lives had meaning, that there was hope. And it begins with what Paul says to the Roman church in Romans 1. He says this, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets and the holy scriptures concerning his son who was descended from David according to the flesh and was declared to be the son of God in power according to the spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. What does this mean? It means that the resurrection is God's receipt. The resurrection means paid in full. The resurrection is the proof. The proof of what? The proof that God has accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And therefore, all who look upon Jesus have been justified. Their sins have been forgiven. Just as death is the consequence of our sin, He showed that, so resurrection is the consequence of our salvation. And so He showed that. You see, we focus much in the Christian church on the cross, and rightfully so, but Paul actually states in Romans, we read it earlier, that Jesus was raised for our justification. 
Romans chapter 4, it will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Paul reminds us that He has done all that needs to be done. And therefore we can have peace with God. Death has lost its sting Later in this passage in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul will say that. He'll say, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. It's interesting to note here that that sting doesn't just mean sting, but a poison sting like a scorpion sting. It's not the bite that kills you. It's the poison in the bite that kills you. And so Paul is saying death can't kill you. It will kill you, but not really. The bite will be experienced, but there isn't any poison at the other end. There is only life. Because Jesus has taken that poison on Himself. And that's why the Bible calls Jesus the anchor of our souls. I love that picture that the writer to the Hebrews gives in Hebrews 6. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. A hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. And so in a world full of ups and downs, of chaos and hurt, there is a certainty that trumps it all. There is a purpose that trumps it all. And ultimately, there will be an end. As one theologian said, you are not suffering from anything that a good resurrection can't fix. Brothers and sisters, let this hope This anchor brought about by the resurrection of the Lord Jesus from the dead still you and quiet you in the most tumultuous times of your lives. Well, finally, let me say this morning that the resurrection is not something just to know and believe and find future hope in. All those things are important, but the Scripture speaks of even more because in Philippians 3, that second passage that I read, Paul wants us to know the power of the resurrection. And he prays for the church to this end. He prays for the Ephesians to this end. And that's the third thing I want us to meditate on for just a moment. And it's this, real change is possible through resurrection power. Real change is possible through resurrection power. Some of you have been around for a while, may have heard me use this illustration before. There's a guy named Billy Sunday who was a prominent tent evangelist back in the 20th century, and he used to speak of the ideal Christian journey being this one comes down the aisle. One accepts Jesus as a sacrifice for his sin. One goes outside, gets hit by a truck, and begins glory and all of eternity. 
In one sense, doesn't sound half bad, right? No temptation to sin, no sorrow in this life, no heartbreak, no enemies, no doubt, no anxiety. But the problem is, this is not the way life is. This is not the way God created life to be. This is not the way God intended resurrection life to be. Glorifying God and enjoying Him now in this life is what we were created for. And so the resurrection needs to be more than just something we believe or something we believe about the future, but it matters now. The resurrection matters now. Let me just give you three passages. Romans 6.4, Paul says this, We were buried therefore with Him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead, we too might walk in newness of life. Romans 8.11, if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give you life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And then Colossians 2, having been buried with Him in baptism in which you were also raised with Him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Him from the dead. You see, brothers and sisters, what God did in Adam in Genesis, in breathing life into him, he now does to those who are in Christ. He breathes new life into us by way of his Spirit. And so the resurrection, it serves not simply in our lives as a future hope that things are going to get better, that all things will be made right, Now, the resurrection is a power that we share today. We who were dead have been made alive by the same power that made Him alive. We now have the power to not do what we so often want to do. Sin no longer reigns in us. I've heard this from individuals. Oh, he'll never change. He's beyond hope. He'll be like that his whole life. He'll never be anything different. And I say, not so. Not if the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is a reality in our lives. The frustrations of our flesh, the addictions, the idolatries, they all can be put to death. And I'm not saying it will happen overnight. I'm not saying it will happen perfectly. It'll probably be a lifelong struggle. But the resurrection proclaims to us that newness is possible, that newness is coming. That we are new creations. That we have new perspective. We have new conduct. We have new ambitions. We have a new power. And that's good news. Because the chances are none of us are going to get hit by a truck, praise God, when we walk out of this place. We're going to have to battle with ourselves and battle with our sins. But you're not alone. And so my encouragement 
to those of you who have already embraced the fact that this is not a fairy tale, is to live like resurrection people. Once you were in darkness, you're not there anymore. You're called into the light. You're people of the light. And so live as people of the light. This brief meditation on these two passages is meant to be something for your head, for your heart, and for your hands. Right? With your head, you believe. I am assured of peace with God because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of the reality that what He did on the cross was vindicated, was proved true by His resurrection. And then in my heart, I rest in that. I not only rest in my secure standing as a child of God in Jesus, but I rest in the hope of the future and the fact that everything will be made right, everything will be made new, that I too will be raised to life just as Jesus has been raised to life. And then my hands, I have now power to be who God has made me to be. Things are not helpless. One more thing as I close. It's actually a quote. All this resurrection talk, it's too good to just keep in this room. If this stuff is true, if this is not a fairy tale, if there's really a power that can be tapped into, where we don't just spiral into the worst of humanity, then we can't keep it to ourselves. And I love this quote that reminds us of that fact, and I'll close with this. Western society doesn't like Jesus unless He's in a crib. And even then, there's a debate. It's fine to believe in Him, but just keep it to yourself. The resurrection doesn't give us that option. Jesus left the grave not to stand in some discreet corner, but to take His throne in heaven. And so we mustn't keep Him indoors, no matter what the neighbors think. He is God's King. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You for the resurrection. Father, some of us have heard this story hundreds and hundreds of times. And yet, as Chris reminded us earlier, we live as if it didn't happen. We live as if Christ hadn't been raised. We live as if the spirit of power that raised Christ is not ours in our lives. Oh, forgive us, I pray. And through Your Word and by the power of Your Spirit, this day, this hour, work in us change. And for those who are on the fence, oh Father, may the reminder of these realities push them over the edge to the place of submission, to the place of purpose and peace and life and newness. 
Oh, Father, I pray that you would take this word, plant it deep in the lives of those who hear it now, for the glory of your name. In Jesus' name, amen.